If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak wherever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Happy almost Thanksgiving, everyone. This is my favorite holiday because it's been so hard to commercialize Thanksgiving. I mean, those who raise turkeys, they do well. Those who harvest cranberries do well. The airlines do well. People who make pies do well. But by and large, this is not a shopping frenzy. It's a gathering of family and friends under the banner of gratitude to eat, talk, eat, talk some more, eat, take a walk, eat, take a nap, get up, eat some same-day leftovers for dinner, and then when the kitchen's all cleaned up and the dog is curled up at your feet, you drop onto the bed like a beached whale <laughs> and sleep like a baby. And that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> this morning, however, I'm not going to preach about pilgrims, but about prophets, about prophets, and how thankful I am that they seem to appear just when we need them and then disturb us with their strange, reckless, annoying commitment to saying exactly what must be said, exactly when it must be said. You've noticed, I'm sure, that we always talk about prophets in the past tense, those old, strange, howling voices from the past. But who looks for a prophet that is at work among us today? Do we even know what to look for? What does a prophet look like, sound like, act like? And how do you know the difference between a prophet in the biblical sense and someone who just thinks they know it all and you should know it also? Or who loves to stand on a street corner and get attention by self-righteously decrying the hypocrisies of our time? 
The great prophets we now claim to revere, of course, were once present tense. They were the contemporaries of the people they annoyed. And, and they were so strange that people often thought they were mentally ill or they refused to listen to them because they did not tickle their ears, which is Bible talk for telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. I asked one of my seminary professors once to define a prophet, and without hesitation he said, a prophet is a visionary after his time, or her time. I think there is a young woman among us today who is a child prophet and who will be remembered someday as a prophet in the biblical sense. She is 16 years old, has pigtails and piercing eyes. She is a climate crusader from Sweden. You know who I'm talking about, of course, Greta Thunberg. I doubt that Greta would call herself a prophet, but then she refuses to care much about what anyone calls her or thinks of her, and she refuses to go to award ceremonies and get pieces of plexiglass because she thinks that's a waste of time and money. It's designed to make people feel better instead of getting to work on the problem itself, which is, of course, to save the human race, and that's our job. I must confess, the first time I heard Greta, I had a strange feeling that I cannot describe, but I also cannot forget. Greta speaks as if out of the future, as if she has traveled back in time to excoriate those responsible for failing the future that she and her generation come from. The day will not only come when it is clear that we failed the most important job our species has ever been given, she says, but that day is already here. We have already set in motion a mass extinction of the human species. In August 2018, Greta Thunberg, then 15, started a school strike for the climate outside the Swedish parliament that has since spread all over the world and involves 100,000 school children. She spoke most recently at the United Nations Climate Action Summit and made absolutely no effort to ingratiate herself with world leaders, or with anyone else for that matter. One of the characteristics of a prophet in the biblical sense is that she tells us something we would rather not hear. She tells us the painful truth, and she offers no false hope. People don't mind bad news, you know, as long as someone will just finish it up with some good news like dessert. But nobody really wants to hear the truth if they feel indicted by it. And in this case, we all feel indicted by it. I don't like it. I want to think of myself as a good person, someone who considers what the future will be like for my kids and grandkids, which reminds me about something I have learned just by getting old. Namely, that in this culture, we are inordinately proud of our children but surprisingly unwilling to make any real sacrifices for them. Put differently, we love our kids in theory. In churches, people prattle on endlessly about young people and how they're the future, you know. But churches don't even pay our share of property taxes, which is the principal means of funding public education and we let our public schools fall into shameful disrepair so we can cut 
spending to pay for tax cuts for people who don't need tax cuts. And then we leave our young people, they are the future, you know, to grow up without art teachers or drama teachers or counselors or even school nurses. And we don't want anyone saying, shame on us, but isn't that what prophets do? They're telling us not to accept the unacceptable, or as the great Rabbi Abraham Heschel put it, the primary emotion of the truly religious person is embarrassment. Look at the world. Do you see justice and mercy? Or in the case of environmental destruction, do you see the garden now only in the rearview mirror? Don't they hold up a different kind of mirror at us and say, look at yourself, look what you've become. You will be held to account for everything you did or did not do. And don't think God's going to save you. God didn't turn the skies into an open sewer. God didn't blow the tops of mountains off to mine them and dump what's left in the creeks. God didn't make a plastic throwaway world that will one day bury you. You did that. And when the people walk away shaking their heads when someone tells them this, and they will always say, such negativity, I just don't want to hear about these negative things. And that Greta, that little Greta Thunberg, isn't she that sad, angry little girl? To be a prophet is not to care what people think of what you say as long as you believe that it's true and must be said. Compare that to our time. Now people don't care if something is true. They only care whether people will like them for saying it. A few weeks ago in church, we read as the text for the sermon some verses that describe the call of Jeremiah, a bona fide Old Testament prophet. You know, the script is always the same for the call of prophets. Apparently no one just gets up one morning, has a good breakfast and says, I'm gonna be a prophet. God calls them and says, you will speak truth to power, and to the last man or woman, they are reluctant. So God urges them forward by a promise to be with them, give them the words to say, protect them, especially protect them, since we do seek to silence our truth tellers, do we not, even in real time, or we just crucify them? Here are some of the words that launched the career of Jeremiah, who everyone knows was a great prophet, at least we know it now. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, this is Jeremiah speaking now about himself, oh, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak wherever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. My paraphrase is, Go get them, sick them, I've got your back. Now, if you're a Bible nerd, you know this isn't the first time someone tried to get out of the job of being a prophet by claiming to be a poor public speaker. Moses tried it. He said Pharaoh would never listen to him because he was, quote, 
slow of speech and slow of tongue. Which brings me back to Greta. She never said, I'm just a girl. She is, of course, not in the classic sense, a gifted public speaker. She's not someone who looks like a celebrity or is full of charisma, like people who go dancing with the stars or perform on The Voice or America's Got Talent. And then there are those eyes of hers, so intense as to be almost unnerving. She is both on the one hand difficult to watch and on the other impossible to look away from. As far as we know, she did not hesitate to step up to this unlikely role of hers by making any excuses at all about her capacities. She has Asperger's syndrome, but she does not consider this a deficiency. She actually said in one of her talks that being on the autism spectrum makes it impossible for her to lie. Now that is really something to think about that a disability makes her more honest, while those of us who are normal are apparently able to lie all the time and effortlessly. It reminds me of a teacher I had in seminary who said that temptation actually increases as capacity increases. That is, we are most tempted to do wrong at the level of ability, not at the level of disability, so the eloquent man can also become an eloquent liar, which begs the question, is Greta's disability a gift in disguise? Is Greta a prophet with pigtails, or is she in need of therapy and a better self-concept? I've also heard people say she's just weird, but when compared to our heroic figures from Scripture, she's got nothing on the strangeness of biblical prophets. Isaiah stripped off all his clothes and wandered around naked, I, I guess just for a conversation starter. Jeremiah hid his underwear in a rock and once put a cattle yoke on his shoulders until another prophet came along and broke it off. Hosea married a prostitute and then he left the lights on for her night after night after night until she stumbled home from work smelling like other men. But perhaps the weirdest of them all was Ezekiel, who once ate a scroll that had been given to him and was rendered mute by God, leaving him to just draw pictures of the coming siege of Jerusalem on a clay tablet, which he lay down beside for 390 days. That's a magic number, I guess. And he baked his cakes over cow manure and used a sword, yes, a sword to shave his head. Now there's more, so much more, but suffice it to say, we would institutionalize these people. A few weeks ago, I traveled to Pullman, Washington, way on the east side of Washington, to give a lecture at Washington State University on climate change as a moral imperative. And there was a crowd of students there who had come to hear a preacher from Oklahoma but their real motivation was the universal attraction on all college campuses, free pizza. <laughs> they crowded into a classroom and I played this short video of Greta Thunberg speaking and then I said to the students, is she a prophet? It got quiet in the room because she's so close in age to the students and 
in the discussion that followed, one student raised his hand and said, well, I agree we have a problem, but I think there's problems with solar and wind and all other renewable energy sources. And he pointed out what was wrong with each and every one of them and left us all feeling that nothing will work. I don't like any of them, he said. And then he just stopped talking. By the way, all professors recognize this guy. He is the contrarian. If the authority figure is for it, he's against it, especially if it's a liberal professor. Eastern Washington, in case you don't know, is nothing like Western Washington. Seattle is over there on the left coast, but Pullman is Trump country. So when he was all done deconstructing any hope we might have to move away from a carbon-based energy system, the silence was making everyone uncomfortable. I just followed up with another question. I said, so, so what do you like? You would have thought I asked him an incomprehensible question. Uh, what do I like? I just don't like what you like. <laughs> okay, I said, that's fine, but what do you like? I mean, you agreed we have a problem, so what are your ideas for solving it? More awkward silence followed, and I was reminded that we may have conditioned a whole generation to know what they are against and how to throw grenades into other people's social media foxholes, but when it comes to give and take to negotiated solutions for the common good, they are clueless. I have trolled you, and I have told you. Now I turn off my computer. The danger here is that so many of us have forgotten cosmology. Cosmology, whether the physical kind or the intellectual kind, you know what cosmology means, it's the whole, the whole, and we're not very good at holistic thinking. We stand at the most critical moment in the history of the human race, and so now we've all got to become cosmologists, considering the whole and not just our small piece of it, which means we all have to become ecologists because ecology is functional cosmology. The eco-prophet Thomas Berry taught us when a species is facing extinction due to its own narcissism and anthropocentrism, then those of us in religious communities ought to be challenged by our biblical stories the ones that awaken our love of the cosmos and of the earth and that empower us to do something about it. The first story that came to my mind was the story of Job. Job found himself in a dark night of the soul after losing everything. Well, we find ourselves as a species in a collective dark night of the soul, not knowing if we can save ourselves. Humans, as one renowned Stanford biologist put it, humans are the first species in 4.5 billion years that can choose not to go extinct. But our thinking would have to radically change. So God interrogates Job, asking him, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job is challenged to wake up to the wonder and amazement of creation itself, and his response is to fall silent, to be speechless, because awe always gives birth to silence. So maybe we need to update the Job story for our time and our cosmology. 
Where were you humans when the universe was born smaller than a zygote and burst into the original fireball that burned helium and hydrogen and gave birth to the galaxies? Where were you humans when the supernovas exploded and spewed out future planets and stars, including our sun, which is not considered all that large? but is large enough to hold inside itself a million planet Earths. Where were you humans when the seas and mountains and the land masses formed on your planet? Where were you humans when life first came forth? Where were you when flowers fine-tuned the oxygen so it would become compatible with our lungs? Where were you humans when the chimpanzees, your ancestors, were swinging in the trees of Africa? Where were you humans when your Neanderthal cousins all died out, but not before passing on some of their DNA to many of you, because they were not just making war, they were also making love. Where are you now that you know the universe is at least two trillion galaxies large, each with hundreds of billions of stars? And where were you humans when the whales and elephants, the bees and the tigers, the forests and the eagles, the condors and the polar bears and giraffes and marmots, don't forget the marmots, all came into existence? Oh, now you fall silent. But as Matthew Fox put it, then why are you killing so many of these marvelous, miraculous creatures? Isn't it because you are so self-centered, narcissistic, in love with Wall Street, and boundless in your greed and quest for power that you have put your wealth into weapons, into weapons instead of into healing and building community and housing and educating all your fellow humans? Where is your love of life, your biophilia? All I see when I look around is necrophilia. I can smell it everywhere, even in your definition of what manhood is. And your religions, the religions you have, what are they doing? Are they teaching awe and wonder, or are they peddling private salvation games? Now, this is how prophets talk. I know it's harsh, but it's not as harsh as the world is coming if we don't listen and act. Someday, this, this generation, ours, you and me, will be remembered as either those who failed the future or those who started trying to repair it. So as we move into Advent and Christmas, please remember that our scripture tells us that a child shall lead us. Remember that? Does that mean the baby Moses? Or does that mean the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School? Does it mean the baby Jesus or those young climate activists who recently shut down the US Capitol? Does it mean one of those cute babies from the British royal family chased by paparazzis? Or is it this slight young woman from Sweden named Greta Thunberg? Well, I, for one, am going to cast my lot with the new kids. Not the old new kids, but the new new kids. That's who I'm really feeling thankful for this week. Greta, by the way, will be speaking on the screen in Milligan Hall after the service. So if you've never heard her, go in there and just take a listen. You won't like it. 
you won't. In fact, might make you feel miserable. But, as the therapist said to the man who began his session by saying, Doc, I feel miserable, that's when the therapist replied, Good. Can you stay with the feeling? Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.